Making It Plain, a podcast dedicated to discussing real issues that impact Black communities, Black families, and Black women. Your host, Dr. Key, is dedicated to discussing Black issues in a way everyone can relate. Welcome to Making It Plain podcast. I am your host, Dr. Key. In episode two of Making It Plain, we are discussing Black youth suicide and the cultural challenges to addressing it. I have with me today, Bianca Augustine. She's a doctoral student in counselor education and supervision, a resident in counseling in Virginia, and a certified clinical trauma professional. Her research interests and clinical experience pertain to trauma and suicide, especially as they impact minoritized ethnic groups. I have the pleasure of working with Ms. Augustine in a number of studies and currently a book. So I would like to welcome you to the show today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, we're going to dig right into this topic. Statistics on Black youth suicide. We have found that a recent study was published on youth risk behavior, and it explored 200,000 youth from 1991 to 2017. And what it found is that there was an increase in injuries related to suicide attempts amongst Black boys. Another study found that Black boys ages 5 to 11 had increased rates of suicide deaths. It was also found that Black youth ages 5 to 12 are two times more likely than white children to attempt suicide. And I think that these statistics are alarming enough for us to really explore this issue surrounding Black youth suicide within the Black community. Now, stigma in the Black community is commonly found to be the reason people don't seek help for their mental health issues. Bianca, why do you think so much stigma exists within the Black community surrounding mental health? I think it has a number of origins. I would say that, in my opinion, the primary one is historical context. So within the Black community, especially here in America, Black individuals have had to be especially resilient. And they've had to do so with limited resources, without the availability of professional help. So I think that we've kind of gotten into the tradition. And in order to kind of maintain our resilience, we've had to be strong. And we've had to either do that on our own or with the help of family members, friends, church communities, those that we feel closest to. So not only were professional help and those resources limited historically, but there was also a lot of distrust. So I think that both of those contribute to the current stigma. So we have individuals who may be distrusting of those on the outside, which again stems from the historical context of Black Americans here in the U.S., Um, And then I think that another part of it is just that tradition of relying on ourselves as well as our family and our built families, our chosen families and communities. So I think that that has a lot to do with the stigma. Um, I think that there are a few other things that might play into it a little bit. So I think that part of it is historically we had to appear strong as a form of survival. And I think that that's kind of trickled down from generation to generation. So being that there's still um, an overwhelming stigma in the U.S. as a whole. 
towards mental health. I think that that's hit the Black community especially hard because we have that history and necessity of having to appear strong. So being that many other communities within our country um, view mental health services and counseling and things of that sort as a sign of weakness, we've had to be especially diligent in not appearing weak. So I think that's an offshoot of that. Um, I would also say that various religious beliefs might contribute to that as well, especially since for a lot of individuals, mental health just isn't something that's understood. And I think that it's something that isn't talked about. So that adds to that stigma as well. Um, Because if we're not talking about it, then we're not able to grasp that understanding of what it is. So it's easier for us to say, oh, just think happy thoughts than it is for us to be like, okay, why are you thinking these detrimental, painful, hurtful thoughts? Um, So I think there are a number of factors that add to the stigma, especially in the Black community. Now, I come from the age of whatever happens in our home stays in our home. And so when we start talking about mental health and mental health issues, people didn't talk about those things because it was only done and dealt with within the home. And that would mean not seeking help because if we seek help, then that extends outside the home. Do you think that that is now an issue or a factor that is currently a trend in Black families still? Do you think that still lingers? I can even remember growing up and going to a friend of my house who had a family member that had some mental health challenges, and that person was never even seen or heard. That person stayed in like one segment of the house, and no one even knew that person was there, unless you were really, really close to the family. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I think that 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 whole idea of what happens in this house stays at this house started off very much as a protective factor for Black members of the community, right? Because we were constantly kind of on guard and we were one of the most vulnerable populations. So we had this distrust of outsiders historically. And I think that that's something that's been passed down from generation to generation. So research shows that those sorts of generational traumas they transform our DNA, literally. So that's being passed down. So not only is the behavior and the mindset being passed down from generation to generation, but also it's it changes our DNA. Those traumas change our DNA. So it's being passed down genetically as well as behaviorally. So yeah, I think that because we've had to be so skeptical of outsiders for so long, that that idea of what happens in this house stays in this house is very much a protective factor that's continuing to be passed down. Now, there's research and studies that talk about how when Black people do go and seek help, that the counselors that they're dealing with, if they're not counselors of color and counselors that can really um, personally relate to the Black experience, that these non people of color who are counseling are often using microaggressions and things like that within the counseling session. And what are your views on that? Do you think this is something that that is very much true? And how do you think this would impact parents, Black parents, seeking help for their children? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great question. I think that's very important to address. Because yes, I mean, as a Black professional who has sought counseling, sometimes the things you hear are not very comforting. Even if they're coming from a place of warmth and good intentions, that doesn't make it hurt any less. So I think that's why the counseling profession and the counseling accreditation agencies have heightened the requirements pertaining to preparing counselors, counseling students and future counselors 
to be better prepared to work with culturally diverse individuals. That's also why we also need more counselors of color, right? We're, we're kind of rare. So if there's more of us, then that also kind of helps to break that barrier between individuals, Black individuals who aren't comfortable seeking health outside of the Black community. So if there's more Black counselors, then that can help to bridge that gap as well. Because once Black individuals come to counseling with a Black counselor, they can see, oh, okay, there are people who quote unquote get it, right? And get me. And there's people that I'm comfortable with. And then eventually we can help bridge that gap between, yeah, and look, here are some of my non-Black colleagues who are trained and who are mindful and sensitive to the unique needs of Black individuals. So I think that as we continue to strengthen the multicultural awareness aspect of the profession, I think that'll also make huge strides in helping Black individuals in the Black community to feel more comfortable in seeking mental health counseling and help as well. Mm-hmm. I want to really address that there is a stigma in a Black community and children who are seeking help and may share with their friends and things that they are seeking counseling or some type of service to help deal with mental health issues may be taunted, may be teased, may be bullied. Parents may even not allow children to play together, right? And so what can we do as a community to sort of address some of the stigma that's surrounding mental health? Because mental health doesn't mean you're broken. It doesn't mean that you're permanently broken and our children can't play together. Right. It doesn't mean that my child is a danger to your child either. Right. Right. So I think a big part of it is us addressing and challenging all those misconceptions. So challenging those stigma and those misconceptions of it means my child is dangerous. It means something is quote unquote wrong with my child. Um, it means that your child can't relate to my child. I think that a big part of it is us. We can't diminish the stigma until we start talking about it. So the conversations are having and are happening within the mental health settings, they're happening within academia, but they're happening within healthcare settings, but they're not happening in the wider community. Mm-hmm. So in order to diminish those stigmas and disprove and kind of myth bust some of those misconceptions, we have to have these conversations in the community where people can access these conversations, right? Mm-hmm. So that can be starting off conversations with children about mental health and just differences in general when they're little, right? Mm-hmm. So they're not growing up with those misconceptions and those judgments and those feelings of of it being okay to bully people who are different and bully those who do reach out for mental health help. I think another part of it is us just kind of teaching empathy, starting at a young age at school, teaching those empathy and social skills that are rare in schools right now. Mm-hmm. Also just kind of having guest speakers come to your students' classes starting when they're younger, talking about mental health, talking about different emotions and that emotions are okay. It's how we choose to behave based on those emotions that we have to be mindful of. So having those conversations, having speakers and conversations at parent-teacher organizations and parent-teacher association meetings to kind of help normalize um, mental health help seeking and to make those resources readily available for parents and their youth. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that once we start normalizing it as a wider community, our kids will feel safer in reaching out for mental health or for say, to say, mommy, daddy, grandma, grandpa, I'm feeling really sad and I think it would be helpful to have someone to talk to. So I think that a big part of it is going to be having those community conversations so that 
the older generations become okay with it. And then they're modeling help-seeking behaviors for the younger generations, the acceptance for the younger generations. Yes. And what I hear you saying a lot is that we need to have the school districts on board with this. Because one thing that bothered me is that my daughter came home and she said a friend of hers had a suicide attempt. And what the school told them to do is not to even talk about it, not to speak on it. They would not even talk to the students about suicide. And I felt that that was the wrong way to go. Like that is absolutely what we don't want to do. Um, It's not have conversations or not bring counselors in to actually work with the students on this incident with this particular student. Because if we're bringing more shame and stigma to it by not actually addressing it in school. And not only that, we're isolating this child who clearly needs not only mental health, professional help, but they also need the social support and the acceptance and the community of their friends in their school, right? But if everybody is saying, don't talk about it, we're not going to mention it, that's like a no-no topic, then this just further isolates this child. And it isolates any other kids who are battling suicidal ideations in private, because now they see that this classmate, this friend, this peer is being isolated and is being treated in this shameful way. So now these kids aren't going to want to reach out for help either. So we're just perpetuating the stigma by not having these conversations. We are. We definitely are. Now, listen, I'm going to play devil advocate here because some would say that this rise in suicide rates amongst Black children is a result of the inability to cope with trauma as previous generations have had to. In fact, some parents would say, you know, I was bullied. You know, why are you depressed about it? You know, shake it off, get the bully back or, you know, do something different because that's what they had to do. What is your response to this? So my response to that is that the answer you would tell, is that the same thing you would say to your child if they said, I have asthma and I'm having trouble breathing? Would you say, oh, well, back in my day, I had asthma, I had trouble breathing, and I didn't have no inhaler. So you get on and figure it out without an inhaler. No, you would say, okay, I had to struggle to breathe. It was terrible. So I'm going to make sure that my child has resources that weren't available to me, right? So the same thing should be said about mental health. So I think a big part of it is that we treat physical health and mental health so very differently, which isn't fair. And additionally, I would say, yes, you know what? Past generations did have to deal with traumas that we don't currently deal with. But at the same time, there are traumas that our kids are dealing with now that previous generations didn't deal with. So instead of looking at it as, well, I dealt with it or I dealt with more, so you deal with it. Instead of having that kind of hierarchy of who had it worse, instead of saying, you know what, I suffered and it was difficult. I see you suffering and it's difficult. So how can we reduce your suffering? How can we help you to cope with your suffering? So instead of making this a who had it worse, make it a how can we make life easier for you? How can we decrease your suffering? Thank you for sharing that. And I do think that it is a matter of parents not really understanding where their child is at or Mm -hmm. even accepting where their child is at. Mm -hmm. Um, We have to accept that this is very serious. And what parents don't realize is that children are learning how to develop relationships. And they are really, their most important thing to them is having friends because they don't have to pay bills and do all this other stuff. And so they want to really make relationships and have friends that support them. And they're 
being have, being bullied and having these other issues really challenges their mental health because they feel that they're not worthy of friendship. And as parents, we have to cultivate and build them up so that they have the strength to deal with it. And building them up may mean taking them to counseling. And we have to be okay with that. We can't, as parents, take on everything with our child. Yeah, and I think that another thing is, as mental health professionals, as individuals in the communities who recognize the stigma and recognize the need for mental health services, I think it's important that when we see a parent reaching out like, who can I bring my child to for mental health services? I think it's important that we build that parent up and like applaud the courage and the bravery and the fact that they're allowing themselves and their child to be so vulnerable. So I think part of decreasing the stigma and increasing the help-seeking behavior is going to be us kind of modeling that way to go. Good job for reaching out for help. This is an awesome thing that you did. Instead of treating it as this like small thing, well, like, good, duh, that's what you should be doing. Thank you for sharing that. Mm -hmm. Now, you mentioned help-seeking behaviors. Yes. And what challenges in the Black community, besides what we maybe already talked about, exist that may keep Black families from seeking help or actually getting the help that they deserve? And when I think of it, I think of, you know, low socioeconomic status and urban communities. What are some challenges that you see? Yeah, so I was saying in addition to the stigma that we've already addressed, absolutely low socioeconomic status because we know that Black families are disproportionately um, represented in low SES communities compared to their white counterparts, um, which speaks to a larger systemic issue. But I would definitely say that if you also notice, there are more mental professionals kind of in private practice where they only take insurance or they only take private pay and less of them in the Medicaid and Medicare sector. So that can pose a barrier as well. In addition to that, some counseling offices, some mental health offices may not have extended hours that extend past the typical nine to five workday, right? So if I'm working a nine to five, it might be hard for me to get a counseling appointment. Also, we just aren't telling our Black community members where they can find hope. I think that's the biggest part of it is that they don't know where to look for these resources. We hear people talking about counseling, but we don't know where to go to find that. That makes perfect sense. I held a talk um, just last year and it was in a community and it was actually um, through my institution. And this talk was just about, you know, my work and, and Black youth suicide. And I did not realize how, how it would draw parents, Black parents, mm-hmm. just to come talk to me and say, my child is experiencing this. What should I do? Because they honestly don't know what to do. And they don't know who to go to to ask for it. And many of them not even, are not even comfortable. So when I began to talk about suicidal ideation on social media and things like that, parents yeah. will often inbox me because they're more comfortable telling me their story than talking to anyone else. Yeah. And so we're not talking about it. The comfort level isn't there. Right. And I think that a big part of it also is that, like you mentioned, the comfort level, right? So the comfort level also isn't there in addressing race, racism, and race-based trauma. So our kids are being told or they're getting this idea that everyone else has dealt with racism, so I just need to suck up and deal with it too. And they're thinking of it as a part of everyday life, and they're not recognizing that dealing with racism and discrimination day after day 
is a form of trauma that is traumatizing. So I think that a big part of it is that we need to be able to have these conversations about race-based trauma and raising awareness about race-based trauma so that individuals realize like, you know what, my kid might just need someone to talk to about the discrimination that they're facing at their school or being the only child of color on their city league sports team. So um, recognizing that that can be traumatic for children as well. Yes, it can be very traumatic. I recently did a TEDx talk Mm -hmm. and my TEDx talk was titled Preventing Black Youth Suicide, The Silver Dollar Approach. Yes. And in my TEDx talk, I wrapped it up with a call to action. And I want to talk about a call to action and what you might add to that. Because Mm -hmm. I asked counselors to go into urban communities and speak to parents about Black youth suicide. Mm -hmm. I asked parents to seek out information on suicide through trainings and workshops that will usually be offered to professionals. Mm -hmm. So I told them to just Look for those workshops, dial the number and tell them I am a parent and I'm very interested in this workshop. Can I come and take this workshop as well? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I would say on top of that, as mental professionals, we need to be more present in the community because people don't know where to find us unless we're making ourselves visible. And it'll help in breaking down that distrust of mental health professionals within the Black community. So I think that that's some calls, some call to action as well. I would also say that communities can begin addressing this issue by offering like little trainings at the school for the kids, right? So during their typical school day, having a safe talk trainer come in and talk about how do I deal with a friend who I think is suicidal? Because kids don't know how to deal with these things. Adults don't know how to deal with these things. A lot of them have the mindset of, well, if I don't say anything, it won't give them the idea. Well, if the idea is there, then it's there. You asking is not going to plant the seed. So I think that a big part of it is teaching adolescents as well as parents how to screen for and recognize suicidality and having creative ways of dealing with it. Because we as mental health professionals also need to recognize that most of the theories and interventions that we're typically taught are very Eurocentric. They were created by white theorists. So they might not work for all of our clients, especially our Black clients. So being able to have some more creative ways that go outside of that, that'll be easier to relate to with these clients as well. But yeah, I think the biggest thing communities can do is just talk about it. Have support groups for Black parents whose children have mental health diagnoses or whose children are in counseling so that they can talk and realize like, okay, this is okay and I have support. Just things like that. Also just recognizing the the difference that having a pet can make in a suicidal kid's life, right? Because it gives them one more thing to live for. So just noticing those little things like that, that can be helpful. Now, I definitely agree with you because I'm a dog lover. I have two dogs and on a stressful day, they definitely bring me a lot of sunshine. One thing we did not touch on Mm -hmm. that's really, really huge in the Black community, and that's the aspect of church and religion. Yes. Now, I, in my call to action, I suggested that people partner with churches to Mm -hmm. actually bring this mental health training and workshops to the church. Sure. And because churches are such a safe space for the Black community and they have been since the times of slavery, right? So I think that's something we can do as mental health professionals is finding out, okay, who are some of the Black church leaders in my community? Who are some of the spiritual leaders in my community? Let me build connections with them. Let me build connections with them and let them know that, hey, if you send a suicidal kid to me, 
I am not going to try to disregard their religious beliefs or their spiritual beliefs. I'll be affirming to that if that's something that's important to the kids. Because some religious communities believe that we're working at odds or working against them. So building those partnerships where it's like, no, we're on the same team. We are both looking to enhance this child's life, to enhance this person's life, and to decrease their suffering. Not only that, but some individuals might only be comfortable talking to their spiritual leaders, as you mentioned. So providing basic mental health first aid training to our religious leaders in our communities so that if a client isn't comfortable coming to us, hopefully they'll be comfortable going to their spiritual leader and that spiritual leader will now have the training to best help them. And that spiritual leader will also now have that relationship built with us so that if it's outside of their wheelhouse, they're comfortable sending their um, parishioners to us for help. I think that's incredibly important. And there's a new movement now among some of the younger um, ministers that say you need God and a counselor. And people are starting to adopt that. And I think that that will really help the Black community greatly. But I believe that the slow rise to really embracing that. What do you think? Yeah. No, I, I totally agree. I think that the same way that, you know, it took a long time for Black communities to be trusting of the medical professions, to be trusting of medical doctors, it's going to take work on the part of mental health professionals to be able to curate and create that trust and that partnership within the churches as well. But yeah, I think it's great that we're having that movement amongst younger pastors and spiritual leaders to say like, yes, you need God, but you also need a counselor. Just like you might need a doctor if you have the flu, you might need a counselor if you're feeling distressed. Yeah, I think that's that's paramount and really important. I also think that it's important that as mental health professionals, we're learning more about alternative interventions. So recognizing that the typical ways that we're taught to conduct counseling may not work for certain clients. And instead, certain clients might be, especially our Black clients, might be more open to some of the alternative forms of counseling and treatment and more natural, holistic forms of treatment as well. So I think it's important that we're educating ourselves on that and also educating the community, both church communities and the Black community as a whole, that if you come to me, it's not going to just be what you see on TV as far as counseling. I'll also integrate these more holistic approaches as well. I'm not going to try to force you to take medicine if that's not within your value system. I'm not going to force you to do things that you're not comfortable with. I'll also honor your cultural experience and your cultural beliefs as well. Right. And I think that's a great point because many people do treat um, depression with diet and exercise. That's something that um, people don't recognize that a counselor can help you with too. I can't tell you how many clients have had come to me. They're really stressed and they're like, you know, but I don't want to do all that talking about my feeling stuff. Okay, cool. We don't have to talk about your feelings, right? Let's talk about what you do to relax. And by taking those kind of like, I call them bag door approaches, we can kind of weave things in. So a counselor can help you kind of come up with new diet goals, new exercise goals, new mindfulness goals to help you treat your depression and help you treat other mental health concerns in ways that are more relatable for the client. Well, thank you. Thank you, Bianca. And thank you for joining me today. Um, I think that this was a great discussion, but we have just scratched the surface of what some of the challenges in the Black communities are. But we need to start having this type of discussion so that parents can get an idea of some things that they can do 
and people within the community can get an idea of how they can really embrace this idea of mental health literacy in the Black community, which will be the focus of our next episode. So thank you. Thank you for having me. And I want to thank our listeners. Thank you for listening to Making It Plain with your host, Dr. Key. If you are experiencing symptoms of depression and feeling suicidal, please contact 1-800-273-8255. And for those of you who want to hear my TEDx talk on Black Youth Suicide, you can find it on my website at www.thedrkey.com. And it's also available on YouTube. Please subscribe to Making It Plain to stay up to date on the latest issues impacting Black families, Black communities, and Black women. Thank you for listening to Making It Plain with your host, Dr. Key. This podcast has been brought to you by our sponsor, Sparkman Key Consulting, LLC. Check us out at www.thedrkey.com.